This is Terry Montesi, CEO of Trademark Property Company. Welcome to Trademark's podcast, Leaning In, where we look at the future of retail and mixed use and how we can lean into it while others are leaning out. This is part one of a two-part episode. Thanks for tuning in. Today, we welcome back Dr. Peter Lineman, leading real estate economist and principal of Lineman Associates. As we dive into the current economic cycle and its impact on real estate investing, and particularly multifamily and retail asset classes. We will also get his expert opinion on whether we're in a recession or not. And if we are, how it will affect Texas markets, the rest of the U.S., and the capital market. So Peter, as an experienced economist, this current economic cycle has to be very interesting. What do you think is different about this cycle from previous cycles, and what is going on with this economy? Well, it is certainly different than any previous cycle. All the previous cycles, at least in my lifetime, were triggered by excesses in the economy, maybe excesses plus a war like uh, the Middle East in 1973, 4 maybe Fed or government policies being excessive. And that certainly could happen here. But let's face it, this whole cycle began because of COVID and the reactions that we took and others took around the world. In that sense, it's a cycle of economics, but not about economics. It's a cycle that totally has a unique footprint in that regard. Just a little over two years ago, we had 23% of the labor force on unemployment insurance. That's not a typical cycle. We have 5 million people a week going on unemployment insurance. That's not typical. You weren't able to shop at a mall. That's not typical. Normally, if you think about it, what would happen in a down cycle is people go to the mall, but they don't buy as much. This was couldn't go to the mall. And I'm just taking some extreme examples. As a result, its DNA, if you will, is very different. Up to including this year as we've been coming out of it. So we've had two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. And I said to people that I've been around in other quarters of negative GDP growth and none of them felt like the last two quarters, none of them. You say, how? We added 2.7 million jobs. We have retail sales adjusted for inflation at all time high. We have vacation expenditures at all time highs. We have corporate profits at all time highs. We have an unemployment rate of three and a half percent. We have unemployment insurance claims in the first quarter that were running at about 200,000 a week, which is kind of historic lows. And over the last six weeks have been up to around 250,000, which is still healthy. And I laughed and I said to somebody, if this is what a recession feels like, bring it on. Give it to me the rest of my life. I can take this recession. And it's just a lot of strange data going on that's generating the GDP. And without being overly technical, the first quarter's GDP was 
all created by export sector, which is highly technical in its adjustments and a small part of the economy, everything else was positive and it was so negative, it made it negative. And the other thing that's interesting is that gross net income, which by the way, normally is within a hair's breadth of GDP, it's been growing while GDP has been shrinking. And there's a bunch of technical reasons why that might be the case. Think of it as top-down versus bottom-up. You would like to believe if you did a top-down math and a bottom-up math, they would show the same things. And almost all the times they do, but not this time. So it's a little hard to figure out. I think the economy's in pretty good shape. We added over 500,000 jobs last month, even as people keep saying people aren't coming back to work. And I go, what do you think those people were doing? That's a lot of people. So I'm not as sour on the economy. I think the economy always has problems, but I don't think we're on the verge of a recession, even though we have two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. Yeah, so not in a recession. If we enter a recession the next 18 months, how likely do you think that is? And will the major Texas markets like Austin, Dallas, Fort Worth, and then on down to Houston and San Antonio, do you think they will behave differently and be impacted less than other parts of the U.S.? You're suggesting Texas might behave differently than the rest of the country. Uh, yeah. Interesting, interesting Once or twice, yeah. No, we've done a lot of work. We put it in Lineman letter, and we have this exercise of alpha and beta on job growth, and we've estimated. And alpha, you can think of, is how does a metropolitan area's jobs tend to grow if the U.S. is adding no jobs? And the second is beta, how responsive is that metropolitan area to the U.S. economy doing well or poorly. And so it's not going to surprise you. High beta markets, Orlando, Las Vegas, Detroit, when the economy is doing really well, they do really well, really, really well. Cars and having fun, you do when things are going really well. But when they go badly, they get badly hit. Now, the actual numbers are in Lineman letter. You can look at it. The interesting thing about the major Texas markets that you named, they have high alphas. That is, even if the U.S. is not adding jobs, they'll add three quarters of a percent or half percent. It's only if the economy gets pretty negative, like one percent shrinkage, in employment, one and a half percent shrinkage, that those markets will tend not to add jobs. You add to that, Houston and Dallas in particular have tremendous boost going on beyond quote normal in that high oil prices. So it's funny, I asked people, do you think Saudi Arabia and the Emirates are going to benefit from high oil prices to say, of course. And I say, well, what about Houston and Dallas and Denver? I mean, not just, right, but Denver, even Pittsburgh a bit with the fracking and certainly the Permian area, right, will be red hot again. 
I think that it takes a pretty severe downturn to drag Houston down, Dallas down. San Antonio, as you know, has got a lot of stuff happening with the border, which is a little complex. They're not doing quite as well, but they're doing well. And Austin does well because of technology, which is not going to go away. It'll have its ups and downs. And Texas. So it does well when Texas does well. And I think Texas does okay. So I think if we did have a recession, it would probably be pretty mild. The Texas markets would probably, and I do mean this, go into four-wheel drive and power through it, whereas a market like Philadelphia, where I'm sitting, we have a negative alpha. We need growth to offset our tendency to have negative growth. And so we don't have the gear to uh, power through negative U.S. growth. Got it. Thank you for that. If we have a recession, is your forecast that if that happens, it's very likely to be a milder side or a steeper side? I would think it should be mild. And the reason is that Warren Buffett's comment that when a recession comes, you find out who wasn't wearing a bathing suit. Well, we found out, remember, 23% of the labor force was on unemployment. Your favorite restaurant went out of business because they weren't allowed to serve food. You had marginal retailers that were already on watch lists, and they all went out of business in 2020 instead of some in 2020, some in 2021, some in 22, some in 23. Some would make it. Well, they all went out of business. So the downturn of 20 and into mid-21 wiped out not just the people with no bathing suit, it ripped the bathing suit off of a lot of people for no fault of their own. So you don't have as many marginal firms out there as you would normally have at this point. Normally, as you head into a recession, you've had a lot of excesses build up and a lot of marginal firms And they get kind of wiped out going down, and that reinforces the down. I think the fact that so much got cleaned from the system unintentionally, right? It wasn't perfectly, but unintentionally got cleaned, that it won't be as deep. So based on your current forecast, what do you see for commercial real estate the next 6 to 18 months, say the balance of? 22 and into 23. I think I'm in a minority a little bit. As you know, as we speak here in mid-August, in June and then increasingly in July, lenders got a little skittish. Is that a good way to describe it? Term sheets were pulled or no, we're not making quotes and so forth. Not less so on multifamily, but on the other categories, retail included. But even on multifamily, we had a multifamily development where the night before we were to close on a construction loan, the lender pulled out, and I've talked to others. Well, I think over the next six months, that reverses. I think you're already starting to see some of it reverse. But I think over the next six months, that reverts. Why? That will be good for commercial real estate, obviously, if the banks come back into the game 
if private equity comes off the sideline, and there's a lot of private equity sitting on the sideline right now, and if that money comes back in the system, yes, it'll be more competitive as a bidder or as a builder, but it will bid up values. It will make capital flows increase. I view it like the following. Suppose I told you I have four quarts of haagen ice cream in my freezer. And I said to you, what do you think the chances are that over the next six months, I don't eat any of them? And I think you would think, well, a guy who's got four quarts of haagen in his freezer has them there for a purpose. I don't know if he'll eat them tonight or the next week, but six months, he's not going to let them get freezer burn. He's going to use it. You'd probably be right. Well, the banks, they don't have four quarts of haagen They've got like 18 billion haagen in their freezer. Their freezer's overloaded. They've got tons of money. This isn't 1991 where their freezer was empty. And when you asked, are they going to lend again? You didn't know because they didn't have any money. They have a lot of money to lend. And a bank is only a bank if it lends. Now, do they have to lend every day? No. Every week? No. Every month? No. But you know what? They got a lot of haagen in there. And sort of the same with private equity. Private equity has a lot of haagen in the freezer. They don't have to spend it this month or next month, but they have it for a purpose. And I don't know if it's a month from now or six months from now, but I think that money comes back into the system. Fear is beating out greed over the last probably five months, four months. It happens from time to time. You're seeing in the stock market some evidence that greed is coming back. I don't mean greed in a pejorative way. I just mean in the sense of uh, you see all the good things that could happen rather than all the bad things. Fear is all you can see is the bad. Greed is all you can see is the good. And we're in one of those moments. One of the things I've learned over my 71 years is that whenever greed is losing to fear, don't give up because greed always makes a hell of a comeback. And that would also include all the money with pension advisors, right? Of course, of course. Which has a big impact on commercial real estate, you know, the large core commercial real estate. Sovereigns. And by the way, we've got households sitting on $4 trillion in cash beyond what you would have expected they'd be sitting on. If we would have been having this conversation at the end of 2019, households have $4 trillion more cash than you would have anticipated them having. Do you think they're going to keep that cash in their freezer? And uh, I must ask you, where'd that come from? It came from monetary injections. Yeah. I just want to make sure that that was out there, that it didn't grow on trees. Didn't grow on trees, but it's interesting the monetary injections were made because they wanted to pump up asset prices because if they felt that if they didn't pump up asset prices and asset prices fell, then the bank's collateral would be in bad shape and the banks would fail. And if the banks failed, then the economy fails. That's the logic. Okay. So did they maybe put too much money in? That's possible. 
Better, if you believe that scenario I just laid out, though, better too much than too little. And better that you take it out slower than faster. Then you say $4 trillion of cash. So the money supply is typically measured by M2, grew by $6.3 trillion since the pandemic began. But cash balances grew by just a little over $4 trillion on the household side and another trillion in corporate. That is to say, most of it that came in is sitting there as an asset. It wasn't used to buy a lot of stuff. Some of it was, but most of it's sitting there as assets. And I think what people will do over time is move out of cash, not completely, they'll move out of cash and rebalance their portfolios, particularly as greed sets in. And Peter, where do you see the key risks and opportunities in commercial real estate today? I like that risk and opportunity phrase. Somebody wrote real estate finance and investment textbook. It's called risk and opportunities, you know, real estate finance and investment risk. Oh, and that's right. And unfortunately, that was a coincidence. I wish I'd have been that well researched no, no, it's great, and intentional. No, I, I love it. I love <laughs> it because that's what it is. I think the, the biggest risk right now for most real estate people is they get distracted by the shiny objects. They stop focusing on, is it a good piece of property? If I'm going to hold it, am I able to manage it well, to add value, to adjust to the market as rent and occupancy conditions change over time, as capital market conditions change over time? Does it have good ingress, egress, location, design? All the things you would normally do. We're in a moment where it's easy to get distracted by the shiny object, like, well, will the Fed raise interest rates 25 basis points or 50 basis points or 75 over the next two months? And you know and I know that if you were to buy a piece of real estate today and you held it for 10 years, the success or failure of that investment does not depend on what happens to the short-term interest rate over the next two months. You would agree? Absolutely. It, it depends on a whole lot of things, many of them that have not even remotely happened. Think about what 10 years ago was 2012. Look at all the things that happened since 2012 that really affected it and swamp. 75 basis points on the short-term rate. But it's easy to get fixated on it. I'm not just saying you shouldn't think about it. I'm not to say care. But right now, there are a lot of shiny objects out there. There's the war in the Ukraine. There's how much are they going to raise interest rates. It's when will inflation recede, et cetera, et cetera. This is one of those times you want to make sure your blinkers, you know, like horses have... They put the blinkers on them so they can see straight ahead and bit side to side. This is one of those times where you want to put your blinkers on. You don't want to put blinders on. I'm not saying put blinders on. But make it such that you don't see the shiny objects so much. Focus on the fundamentals. And particularly if you're a long-term investor, 
focus on the long term. And by the way, long term, I don't know, seven years, 10 years, 15 years, the performance of your asset will have massively more to do with things that happen eight years from now than eight weeks from now. Yeah, got it. That's a good point. Well, in real estate, it's, it's such a long-term asset. It's not really you know meant to be a short-term asset. So that's obviously these short-term things, they will impact our cost in the short term and they will impact our forecast, but they really won't much impact our performance. It won't affect the performance a lot. By the way, it'd be interesting to go back and look at Lineman Letter from uh, 2012. And what was the shiny object? You know what I mean? And you were fixated on it. I was fixated on it, whatever it was. And you can't even remember what it was 10 years later. I'm sure one of them 10 years ago was, what will the Fed raise interest rates? Well, here we are 10 years later, we're still talking about that. One more thing on bankers, and I don't mean this to bang on bankers or capital in general. One of the my travel friends, very good travel friend, was a very major banker early in her career, very major banker. And we, she, we, she was part of a group of us, and we were over watching the wildebeest cross the Mara River, you know, the crocodiles and the whole thing where they jump in, so forth. They to and fro and to and fro and to and fro and they don't go and then they don't go and they don't go. But maybe they go, no, they're not going to go. Then they go like hell. The crocodiles, they're going like hell. They go until they stop. And when they stop, they stop. And kind of fear greed in a way. They went to the other side. But And my friend, who was a great banker, looked at me and she said, they're damn bankers. And I've always remembered that. It kind of captures that in a way that's us, right? Fear and greed, yes. Forecasts look over the next six to 18 months. What do you have an opinion on related to, say, inflation, interest rates, supply chain, and its impact on commodity pricing? Those are the things that in commercial real estate that are current shiny objects, but they are things that we have to have a position on help our thinking. Those are much more real, Terry, than than the short-term interest rate, I think. Supply chain. There's two indexes on supply chain. They're not mine. One has been put together by The Economist and one by the Federal Reserve. And both of them are still high, but have fallen by about 25% in the last month or so. Okay, And that is to say supply chain issues are working their way through, which is not surprising. I mean, we have supply chain issues before in life, and they resolve over time. So they're already resolving. You see on commodities, copper is down. Um, uh, Chips are coming back. You're seeing auto being able to go up because chips Supply is rising quickly. You see ships in the harbors, not as many of them, back down almost to normal levels, still above normal levels. You see building supply products like lumber has come down. This is anecdotal. You're starting to see 
subcontractors, and I do mean starting to see subcontractors, subcontractors until very recently were faced with a labor market, trade market, that have a pipeline that was finishing up office buildings and hotels that were started three, four years ago. Well, those are done. And nobody is starting new office buildings and nobody's starting new hotels. They went from having a lot of work to two sectors of producing nothing. As you know, the shopping center business is always pretty muted in terms of the amount of product because you don't generally build a lot stack. So that is also slow. So what you're seeing is even the trades are showing improvement, still expensive, but they're having a much easier time finding labor. It's not easy, much easier. Oil. Oil is people. Think of the dynamics, okay, on oil. Oil went from like 65 a barrel. You could get it out of the Permian for about 30 to 35 a barrel. Regulatory environment is always a pain in the ass, but at $30 a barrel, I'll do it. Can I capture it? Oil prices went to 125. Regulatory environment is even less welcoming than it had been. On the other hand, if my extraction is $35 a barrel, I'll put up with a lot of unwelcome uh, regulatory environment when the price is $100 to $125 a barrel. Guess what? Oil production is increasing. And it's increasing for the oldest reason in the book, which is it's really profitable. And real profits tend to generate supply and bid away some of that profitability. Now, what happened, if you think about it, imagine you were a contractor and you just saw oil go from 80 to 100 to 125. People were building in margins like it was going to go to 140 when they were quoting. And that was for the gasoline for their trucks and for the resins that they were going to purchase and the plastics and all that kind of stuff. So they weren't even bidding on the price of oil being around 125. They were bidding on it being more like 140. And by the way, people were quoting to them. Their resins were being, their resin products were being quoted to them as if it was going to go there. Well, oil's down to 90 a barrel. Not only is it not 125, it's gone the other direction and will probably continue to go the other direction for the simple reason, you saw the numbers, record profits. And record profits tend to bring on more supply. And what will that do to inflation? What people don't understand, you know, you see the consumer price index not including oil and oil products. And that is true. But tell me, what doesn't include oil products that we consume? Well, or Peter, what isn't impacted by the shipping costs? That, That's my that, point. Yeah, so whether it uses petroleum in the process or in the packaging, everything is, is shipped and transported using oil and gas. But my Haagen-Dazs ice cream, to your point, that's what I meant. My Haagen-Dazs ice cream 
is affected by the price of gasoline and diesel and so forth because the machine that makes the paper uses petroleum and the people cutting down the trees use petroleum and the, the mixer for the ice cream and on and on and on and then the driver and then the refrigeration in the supermarket. And Peter, have you studied or you may know the answer is it when all prices go down like they have the last 75 days, something like that, when all prices go down, how long does it take before that impacts the pricing of goods in the system? A couple of months, okay. two to three months. So that would start to have an impact soon. You're seeing it right now directly in that oil prices are down. You're seeing the direct part, but you're not seeing the indirect part. Now, it's interesting, the biggest push on inflation in last month came from residential rents. And it's interesting, they don't calculate it off of just residential rents. Put that aside, it's a technical discussion. But if you think about it, if you're an apartment owner, you're kind of the creator of the main cause of inflation. So you're not so unhappy about inflation if you're an apartment owner right now. Speaking of that, my next question is about the multifamily sector. mentioned to you the last 18 months we've entered into the multifamily business we have a pipeline that includes a couple of thousand units now we're in deep into design on several most are in dallas and austin some in atlanta but all in strong markets what is your view and forecast for the multifamily business rents supply etc the next one to three years So I'm only smart enough to figure out the kind of supply and demand. So from the demand side, the demographics are good. We don't have a baby bust or something looming. The demand side, the demographics are quite good. The spur that we saw really drive apartment rents appears to be, and I can't quite prove it, but it appears, I can get close, appears to be that I was living with two roommates or I was living with my parents. And that was fine as long as I went to work every day and as long as they went to work and as long as I was out at night and so forth. Then came the pandemic and I couldn't go out and they couldn't go out. And my roommates were there all the time with me and we were all trying to Zoom and we're on top of one another. And I don't like my parents that much and I know they don't like me that much. And... The pandemic actually seems, as it set in, push people out in a spurt into apartments because I can't take it, whoever the I is in that. Well, that's kind of probably run its course a bit. But the demand demographics are good. Incomes are up. People have jobs. If you want a job, you can get a job. That's all good. The supply side multifamily on a national basis is undersupplied to the tune of about one and a half percent, just roughly. And that's probably creeping nimbyism. Even a place like Dallas, Houston, it's harder to build an apartment in Houston today than it was 15 years ago. It's maybe easier to build it in Houston than in Santa Barbara, 
it's tougher to get approvals in or get it all done in Houston than when I started in the business. In Houston, in the old days, you just got a bulldozer and you went and off you went. No zoning, et cetera. So now creeping NIMBYism has probably created about a one and a half percent shortfall nationally. Some markets more, some markets less. And I like to be in a market where there's a shortfall. You add to that, that the same phenomena has really impacted single family. And that's why home prices are outstripping incomes for the last 10 years, is that if you look at the numbers, we went from, I think it was in 2010, my numbers showed we had about a balanced national supply and demand of single family houses. And now we're sitting at a three and a half percent shortfall. Three and a half percent for something people really want. If you've got a shortfall of supply and multi, and you've got an even bigger shortfall in single, they got to live somewhere. And that puts upward pressure on prices and rents. Now, on the single family side, the fact that upward pressure will outstrip income growth means I've got to save longer to get a down payment. And that means you have prolonged rental. Now, there's some people who will rent all their life. I'm talking about the transitional types. The transitional types got a boost during, interestingly, the big move out that you're always worried about with uh, multifamily is from the millennials kind of occurred in that their grandparents died or prematurely, they got an inheritance, they used it for a down payment, and they had money but nothing to spend it on in 2020 and early 21, and they saved as much in eight months as they did in eight years, and they used it for a down payment. Now, those two factors have kind of run their course. People are back to spending, they're taking holidays, and thankfully, we don't have as many premature deaths so we don't have the inheritance. Do you want to be in a market where there's a fundamental shortfall of supply? If I'm creating supply, absolutely, yeah. By the way, are there going to be difficult moments? Are there going to be everything's hunky-dory? No, because in a way, you price to the undersupply. I mean, you can figure out that the markets are a bit undersupplied. And therefore, you bid for the dirt or you bid for the existing property reflective of that undersupply. Fundamental from a rent and occupancy works pretty well, as far as I can see, for the next decade. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you can hear the rest of the conversation. To learn more about Trademark, visit TrademarkProperty.com.